Everyone holds his fortune in his own hands. Like a sculptor, the raw material he will fashion into a figure. But it's the same with that type of artistic activity as with all others. We are merely born with the capability to do it. The skill to mold the material into what we want must be learned and attentively cultivated. Gotha. Neil, welcome back. Thanks, Nat. Awesome to be here. Very excited for this episode where we are diving into Mastery by Robert Greene. This is a book that has not come up as much on this podcast with guests, but I know for both of us, this book was a huge influence. I think what's really interesting and exciting about this book is there are a lot of books out there on how to hack the learning process, get through you know the beginning of it so that you're good enough at the skill to get away with it and play around with it. This is really the book on becoming a master, becoming the best in the world at what you want to do. So the way he writes it, right, is he has taken these dozen some examples of some of the greatest masters throughout history in a lot of different crafts, like airline pilots, chemists, physicists, you've got writers, musicians, it's all over the map. And he breaks down the process to mastery using stories from their life and gives this extremely useful framework that we can all follow to become masters at whatever we want to become masters of. So what we're going to try to do is go through that framework on this podcast. Uh, This is an experiment. I'm not sure (laughs) how well that sort of linear format will translate to audio, but you know, I think it'll be interesting to try. I'll have the notes online as well for anybody who wants to look at them afterwards. And of course, you should you know check out the book after too because it's a fantastic book. It's an amazing book. I don't think any book has impacted my thinking about skill development nearly as much. I would say it's like This and Peak by Anders Ericsson, like maybe the only two you need. And yeah, so you know, we're just starting off the intro of the book here where Green is going over how the book is going to be laid out. And he explains in the intro, We imagine that creativity and brilliance just appear out of nowhere, the fruit of natural talent or perhaps of a good mood or an alignment of the stars. It would be an immense help to clear up the mystery, to name this feeling of power, to examine its roots, to define the kind of intelligence that leads to it, and to understand how it can be manufactured and maintained. Let us call this sensation mastery, the feeling that we have a greater command of reality, other people, and ourselves. Although it might be something we experience for only a short while, for others, masters of their field, it becomes their way of life, their way of seeing the world. Such masters include Leonardo da Vinci, Napoleon Bonaparte, Charles Darwin, Thomas Edison, and Martha Graham, among many others. And at the root of this power is a simple process that leads to mastery, one that is accessible to all of us. And I love it's like it's so motivating. Yeah. <laughs> you read it and you're just like, oh shit, like he's gonna I'm tell gonna us. do something. Yeah, like, <laughs> I'm gonna become Charles Darwin. Yeah. Right. Like it's really exciting. And the book is broken down into these these few sections, and he gives a high-level overview of how it all works, right? So in the beginning, we enter a new field with excitement, but there's also this fear, right? It's hey, we're just starting out, and I'm like excited to get started, but oh my god, you know, there's so much that I have to learn. And the biggest danger here is this boredom, impatience, fear, confusion. Or it's where it takes longer to get good at something. Yeah, yeah, it does. Than you maybe would hope for. Exactly. And once people get bored or impatient and they stop observing and learning, like the process stops. 
right? Right. It's like, as soon as you get bored, you're going to slack off, maybe just stay at that same level and not keep improving. But if you can manage those emotions and keep pushing forward, then you start to gain fluency with the skill, you master the basics, and you can take on bigger and better challenges. At some point, you move out of that student phase into the practitioner phase, where you get to use your own ideas and do your own experiments, get feedback on the process, and implement your own style. And then after years, really, like continual practice for years, eventually you make the leap to mastery. And I like how he makes that distinction of years, right? It's not, this is not (laughs) like a get, you know, good at something quick kind of book. This is like years and years and years of of work. You're, you're, you're going down a path in this book and it's not like, Hey, 90 days to becoming a good marketer. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Become master in three months. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. And it's broken out into basically three phases. The apprenticeship, the creative active, and then mastery. And if anyone listening hasn't read this article, and I imagine most of you haven't, I have a good article on this about the Dreyfus model and sort of the five levels of expertise, which is like novice, advanced beginner, competent, practitioner, and expert. And it was interesting rereading the book now after writing that article and how similarly Green's stages tracked those stages oh, wow. found in the research. Yeah. So it, that's also, I think, a helpful model for thinking about getting better and becoming a master at skill. So yeah. And you know, he just ends the intro on this note that in the past, only elites or those with an almost superhuman amount of energy and drive could pursue a career of their choice and master it. A man was born into the military or groomed for the government, chosen among those of the right class. If he happened to display a talent and desire for such work, it was mostly a coincidence. Millions of people who were not part of the right social class, gender, and ethnic group were rigidly excluded from the possibility of pursuing their calling. Even if people wanted to follow their inclinations, access to the information and knowledge pertaining to that particular field was controlled by elites. That is why there are relatively few masters in the past and why they should stand out so much. These social and political barriers, however, have mostly disappeared. Today, we have the kind of access to information and knowledge that past masters could only dream about. Now, more than ever, we have the capacity and freedom to move toward the inclination that all of us possess as part of our genetic uniqueness. It is time that the word genius becomes demystified and de-rarified. We are all closer than we think to such intelligence. Puts it all in your hands. I know. It gets exciting, right? (laughs) Yeah. So this is, you know, it's like the intro, you're getting fired up, right? The premise here is anybody can become a master. You don't have to be, you know, special, born with some specific talent, specific genius. You follow the process. You work at it for years, probably decades. You can become a master of your craft. And I think what he's saying here is like not, he's saying everybody can become a master. But I think in reality, we all know like most people don't get there because right. they either get bored, they, they something happens along the way, they, they find out they're not as interested in something as maybe they thought they were. But what he's saying here is it's in your hands. It's powerful. Yeah. So if you become a master and you can, right, you have that ability. But if you don't, you know, it's your fault. Yeah. Like you have that choice. And that's what I think is so great about this book is that it's almost like the sooner you read it, the better off you are. Absolutely. And yeah, I mean, like we said, you know, he breaks it out in this apprenticeship phase, this creative active phase where you're applying the skills and then eventually mastery and apprenticeship is a big portion of the book. It's about the first half. But the most important foundation of that is discovering your calling. 
figuring out what it is you were, you know, put on this earth to do or what it is you connect with most, what you really get excited about. And that's what this first section of the book is about. There's one thing I'll nitpick about your wording there with when you say most, what thing you connect with most, I think people get very hung up on that because there's always this sense of like, maybe there's something else I'll connect with more. And they, a lot of times might not get started. Right. It's like, so there's kind of this balance of like, there's something that you connect with, you feel it, that you're really connecting with something. You should just go in with that. And then you'll find like, you can zigzag a little bit. You'll figure it out kind of like along the way. But if you're kind of like always looking for that most, it always feels like there's something you're like, well, I haven't tried, you know, skateboarding. Maybe I shouldn't be a a sprinter because (laughs) I haven't tried skateboarding yet. Or like, you know, you always feel like there could be that other thing um, if you're always looking for to optimize for the best of something. So, yeah, that's my only little nitpick there. Well, but I think, yeah, because a lot of times people just sit on the sidelines because of that. True. That's true. Because they're like, oh, I don't know if this is the yeah, thing. Yeah, exactly. Right? Like, I mean, I'm sure you have friends, too, who are like optimizing for optionality mm-hmm. over like picking something. And then you never become good at anything yeah. because you're like, well, and, I mean, uh, uh, there's an article I put in my newsletter for this month, which you'll get tomorrow, I think. But it's literally talking about this kind of epidemic of optionality optimizing yeah, that is right. in our generation where people are like going to consulting or, I mean, I'm guilty of this, going into doing certain jobs because of the future options that'll open up. And there's a balance between doing that. And I think what Robert Green's saying here is like, the sooner you get into your actual calling, so not optionality, but go into what you actually are trying to get, become a master at, the better off you'll be. Well, that's one of the big criticisms I've heard levied, especially at like the consulting appeal to students, is that it is a great job if you don't want to pick something yet. Right. Because right. it's so broad. But yeah. the downside to that, and I think what, you know, I think Robert Green would probably agree with this, is yeah. you don't start on that path to mastery on anything. No, exactly. At that point. Yeah. And I, I think this is a common problem in a lot of fields of people, you know, our age, people who are young. It's not just work. It happens in relationships, too. Oh, absolutely. Too, right? Yeah. I mean, you see it all the like, time. Yeah. Option shopping. You know, you always think, oh, there's probably going to be someone better. Right. Uh, planning things with certain people is impossible because they'll text all their friends and try to figure out what everyone is doing. And oh. then they'll pick what they want to do. <laughs> Right. And like those people, you just, like you can never rely on them actually coming through. But you never, and you never know who hasn't texted back. They might text back later on that evening. Right. Exactly. Like, yeah, there's right. people <laughs> who are going out on Tinder dates and like using Tinder in the bathroom to see if there's like a better option yeah. for later that day. Right. Like <laughs> this shit happens. Right. People yeah, are shopping. Yeah. Yep. But that is why discovering your calling exactly. is so important. So we'll hop into the section here. And he opens it with this section, right? You possess a kind of inner force that seeks to guide you toward your life's task what you were meant to accomplish in the time that you have to live. In childhood, this force was clear to you. It directed you toward activities and subjects that fit your natural inclinations, that sparked a curiosity that was deep and primal. In the intervening years, the force tends to fade in and out as you listen more to parents and peers, to the daily anxieties that wear away at you. This can be the source of your unhappiness, your lack of connection to who you are and what makes you unique. The first step toward mastery is always inward, Learning who you really are and reconnecting with that innate voice, knowing it with clarity, you will find your way to the proper career path and everything else will fall into place. It is never too late to start this process. Beautiful. I think it's, I mean, it's really true, right? Like we all have probably felt at points disconnected from what we feel like we should be doing, right? And I think people who end up unhappy with jobs or with work that they're doing or even with school, it's because you feel on some level out of sync, right? What kind of tendencies did you display as a as a child that you think relate to what you're working on now? Like, were you always trying out new things? Like, were kind yeah. of always curious about life? Or I mean, I do think that the 
kind of frenetic jumping between different things is a good example of this where, and this would always drive my dad crazy, right? Like I would never stick to anything and, you know, it would be like, Oh, I want to try this. And I get super into it for three months and like, all right, I'm going to go to this thing now. <laughs> and 90% plus of things wouldn't stick, yep. but a few did. Right. And, and I'm that way now too, right. Where most of the stuff that I do doesn't stick, but that's fine because certain things do, right. Like the site, which I've been doing right. for, you know, almost three years yeah. now. Yeah. So it's like, okay, other stuff won't stick, but some stuff does. Right. right, exactly. So I feel like that definitely played out, and that kind of relates with being entrepreneurial, right? The experimenting, trying new things, and also, like, I don't know, I guess I'd call it a systems interest, where I like figuring something out and setting up a system for it and then doing something else. Interesting. Okay, then, like, walking away from that. Exactly, because yep. I, I cannot do repeated implementation. Like, I get bored the minute I have to do something the same a second time, <laughs> right? And then I'm just immediately miserable, and I'm like, all right, how do I figure out how to get out of That's this? That's a really good thing to know about yourself at the same time. How about for you? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, a couple things like one, I, cause I still don't really know what I do. Like, I don't know what I'd call Smart. myself, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, like one thing is like, I've never really been kind of like afraid of voicing an opinion and being wrong about it mm. or something, or like trying to ask for stuff. So, so the whole thing about like, people are scared of like, uh, selling because they're worried about like the rejection side of it. Right. I've never really felt that part of it. I've been saying wrong stuff my entire life. So I'm kind of <laughs> used to it by now. <laughs> my, uh, I think my mom would always like remind my brother of this when he was younger. You know, I was like the older brother. So he'd like listen to what I would tell him kind of blindly. And my mom would always be like, well, wait until like, wait to hear what Neil says next week about that topic (laughs) before you follow his advice. (laughs) So like, I'm, I've always kind of like pitch stuff. Yeah. And I would wholeheartedly believe it at the moment I'm pitching it. But I've also been always very good at like changing my mind. If I hear better facts about something or somebody tells me I'm wrong and why, I'm never like, oh, well, this is what I said last week, so I have to stick with that. It's good so, for uh, working at a hedge fund, yeah. right? Like they do that all the it's time. It's probably good for being a politician, maybe, someday. If I, can, uh, I think it's the opposite. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think flip-flopping is frowned upon. The yeah, ultimate exactly. flip-flopper. Um, yeah, but I think if you have better, you know, if you get better facts about something, you should Yeah, split, you should change but, your, I mean, that's what a sane person would do. Yeah, right? exactly. <laughs> that's usually not a requirement for not politics. Not a requirement for politics anymore. But yeah, then the other thing is like, kind of like the business model that I've tended to like best is marketplaces. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, I've i always just liked kind of sort of building these little systems, which is what I view a marketplace as. So even like, you know, my brother and I would play with like Legos, right? right. And we would sort of kind of like move the, like we sort of make like this imaginary world and stuff, right? But we'd always almost move it to like this, uh, for lack of a better word, like economy that's taking place there where like okay. people are like, like, like a car repair place and then we'd make like a lego car and it breaks down and then the character has to like give something to that car repair place right there's like maybe like a currency or something um i always like like kind of computer games that were like the strategy type where you kind of have resources and you have to use those to like build an army or whatever yeah 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 exactly i always like those are my favorite kind of computer games so i i view those kind of similarly like you're setting up systems to gather those resources and Yeah, it's good. so I view that as very similar. And I do, I'm like addicted to the marketplace business model. I think it's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's good to know about yourself. And, you know, for everyone reading and listening, right, Green actually gives these sort of three steps for trying to figure out what that calling is to reconnect with, right? And he says, first, you must connect or reconnect with your inclinations, that sense of uniqueness. The first step then is always inward. You search the past for signs of that inner voice or force. You clear away the other voices that might confuse you, parents and peers. 
you look for an underlying pattern, a core to your character that you must understand as deeply as possible. It's kind of like we were just saying, right? They're patterns, usually from youth that you can identify. With this connection established, you must look at the career path you are already on or about to begin. The choice of this path or redirection of it is critical. To help in this stage, you will need to enlarge your concept of work itself. Too often, we make a separation in our lives. There is work and there is life outside work where we find real pleasure and fulfillment. So I think this is a really big distinction, right? He's saying like, look, if you actually find this calling and you're doing it, that separation really isn't going to exist. It falls away so quick. Yeah, Yeah. it's just gone. It's like, this is what you want to do and spend time on. I remember having this conversation before I read this book, actually, with with a friend in college. When I first started really getting into like the entrepreneurship stuff. I was just like working all the time and I loved it. Like it didn't feel like work. And I think somebody said it, something like that to me once where it was like, why are you, you know, you work a ton, like you work a lot. And I was like, yeah, but it doesn't really feel like work. And the, basically the example I gave him was about how quickly you'll get better if you actually enjoy, because he was doing something he didn't like doing. Right. And that's the context. And, and I was explaining how much I like doing what I'm doing. And so the example I gave him is like, if you spend eight hours a day doing something, you know, you don't like, you're not going to spend nine hours or 10 hours because it's so painful. You're only going to do what's required, which is maybe that eight hours. Whereas if you're doing something you like, you might spend 16 hours a day on it, which means that your one week is equivalent to that other person's two weeks. Your one year is equivalent to that person's two years. And that doesn't even include the compounding that happens as you get better at something, right? So it's just like, you will get better that much faster. And like, you will leave that other person in the in the dust if they're doing something that's not their calling because there are people in their field who are doing something that is like not everybody likes accounting there's tons of accountants who hate what they're doing but there are accountants who absolutely love what they're doing they're probably really good at it exactly (laughs) they become beasts at accounting and yeah i think that applies for any field like yeah if if that's your calling it doesn't feel like work doesn't feel like work and you know i think the other distinction he's making here is that Jobs are not just the obvious jobs, like especially if you're in college, it is so easy to just see the things that come to career fairs and be like, you know, (laughs) these are my options, these are my options, right? You're picking from this pool. But uh, (laughs) there's a great line in uh, Excellent Sheep where Derezowitz is saying, you know, when you walk into a Starbucks, you look at the menu and you can order anything off the menu, but you can also leave. Right. 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 Like you don't have to get a Starbucks. (laughs) That's a great, you know, great, great line there. But a lot of people just look at the menu that they get in college or whatever. (laughs) And then they say, oh, well, these are the options. Right. Right. But I mean, especially today, the number of jobs you can do is so crazy. Like there's so many ways you can make money. Oh, yeah. Well, I I mean, I remember when I was in high school, I talked to someone who's he was an older guy and his either his friend or his sister. She programmed the fountains at the Bellagio. Like that was her job. That's fascinating. I know. It's a really cool job, right? <laughs> but you would never think of that. No. You don't anticipate that that's a career. Yeah. But anything that you're interested in is probably some way to turn that into a job. Oh, yeah. Especially in the world of like the freelancing solopreneur stuff where, I mean, we both have a lot of friends who are just kind of doing something they're very good at yeah. and on their own and making right. a lot of money doing yeah. it. Yeah. Or as much as they want to make. As much as they want. Exactly. They have everything they need. And um, I think that's the other thing too, is like, it's very easy to get caught up in like, well, that person's making 200,000. I'm only making 100,000. So like, I'm falling behind. But it's like, that's not necessarily the metric you should be using. Because if you're thinking that, you need to go listen to our episode (laughs) on Letters from a Stoic. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, actually, one last tangent that you can make money doing, you know, whatever you kind of find that's interesting. Chaz used to be uh, head of something at P&G called FutureWorks, which is sort of their incubator kind of thing where they'd bring in ideas from outside. And he said one time this woman came into pitch and her idea, which what he thought at the time was just an idea, was for bird diapers. 
right? <laughs> and like, yeah, no joke. And so she's <laughs> she's making this pitch and the feedback from the little, you know, you've been in those like CMU pitch competitions, it's kind of like very similar to that, like a panel of entrepreneurs, I'm using air quotes here that you guys can't see, but, <laughs> um, and then they get feedback and basically everyone was like, well, maybe you should test this idea, see what the market size is. And then she's like, oh wait, no, I'm actually turning over $2 million a year in <laughs> revenue in this business. I'm looking at how do I scale? That's crazy. <laughs> And bird so you're diapers. like, bird diapers is a viable business for somebody. Like, I'm not saying maybe that's her calling. Maybe it's not. Maybe her calling is e-commerce. I don't know what it is. But all I'm saying is there's ways to make money like are not through like the traditional you're career not. fair options. <laughs> that's the equivalent of leaving the Starbucks. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, that's like a completely different city. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> But the the last point Green gives here is that you have to see your career or vocational path more as a journey with twists and turns rather than a straight line. You begin by choosing a field or position that roughly corresponds to your inclinations. This initial position offers you room to maneuver and important skills to learn. You don't want to start with something too lofty or too ambitious. You need to make a living and establish some confidence. Once on this path, you discover certain side routes that attract you while other aspects of this field leave you cold. You adjust and perhaps move to a related field, continuing to learn more about yourself, but always expanding off your skill base. Like Leonardo da Vinci, you take what you do for others and make it your own. This is exactly what we were talking about before we got into the section, right? You literally exemplify this. Thank like, you. This is you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I feel like we both do, right? This is, we've both been influenced a lot by this book. And I feel like one of the hardest things is having the... I guess like strength of mind or low sunk cost fallacy to say, okay, you know, this version of this thing isn't working for me. So I'm going to like switch into something else or at least like test something else. Right. And see how I like it. Yeah. There's the one thing that is frustrating about this, all these twists and turns is when people ask you what you do. Right. You're just like, like, uh, how do I describe this? (laughs) But I mean, I find, and I'm sure you find this too. There's usually like one underlying thread that pulls through. I mean, like for me, it's the writing where it's like, okay, I was doing, philosophy degree and then i was doing internet marketing and lifestyle business and then you know blog content and podcast but like under that is this thread of kind of like writing and argumentation and like books yeah presenting ideas i think you've done exactly a lot of what you've done has been that and just doing that in different mediums and different forms you know that's part of the experimenting too like i started a youtube channel briefly and i didn't like doing video Right. I just really didn't enjoy it. You learned that about yourself. Yeah. Yeah. So you you have to do those experiments. Although your hair is looking really good right now. So maybe you should go back to the YouTube. It's it's the no no shampoo. shampoo. (laughs) No shampoo, no conditioner. It's been almost a year now. I tell you, that's the secret. It's amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Justin asked me that too. (laughs) Okay. But uh, so Green also gives a few ideas here for finding that like life task, that thing that you're really interested in. And I'll just read these as a list and then we'll talk about them a bit. So return to your origins. For many of the masters, that inclination and interest was really clear during childhood. So what were you obsessed with when you were younger? Find the perfect niche, right? So take your combination of interests and find a field where you can really dominate by combining those interests. This is something Scott Adams has talked about a lot. We can come back to avoid the false path. We've talked about this, right? Don't get sucked down somebody else's idea of what you should be doing, you know, going after money, fame, parental influence. You have to rebel against that and be honest. The what other people will think idea. That's so tough to run away from, but it's it's so necessary. Yeah. Uh, Letting go of the past, like we were just talking about, you know, sunk cost fallacy, just because you've been doing something for a long time doesn't mean you have to keep doing it. And 
find your way back, right? If you've been deviated from the path, if you were on it and doing great and then something pulled you away, you have to come back to it. You know, if you've read Siddhartha by- I love that book. Yeah, Herbert Hesse, right? Herman Hesse, yeah. Yeah, Herman Hesse, yeah. Uh, that's like one of the big premises, right? Yeah. He gets distracted by this concubine for years yeah. and then eventually it's like, no, I have to return to my life path, right? Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, for anybody out there like trying to figure it out, right, who feels like, I don't know what I like doing or what I want to do, yeah. I feel like this is a great model, right? Figure out what you liked when you were a kid. See how you can combine your interests yep. to dominating a niche. And I think what skills, if somebody's a little older, maybe not currently in college or in high school, if someone's maybe already working, look at like what the skills you have now and how that can sort of uh, relate to like how that can sort of help you get onto a different path. Yeah. How you can combine it with your interests. Yeah. I have a, I have a friend um, who he used to work at a, like a very large accounting firm and he's an accountant by background, but he really wanted to get more into like the startup stuff. So he left his big accounting job to go become uh, basically startups CFO. Okay. after they raised like their B round or something. Cool. And it was like a very interesting tangent for him because he was able to kind of combine all the skills he already had. He knew he really wanted to get into startup, but he didn't want to like kind of take the full leap. And he had like a family and there were other sort of, you know, restrictions on his time. It's not like, you know, the ability to just quit and there are right. other people relying on him. So uh, this was kind of like a safer way to go do that and then get onto a different path using skills he already had. So, and that's a niche because there's not that many accountants, I think, who are in the startup world. No, it's true. So it's right? like, like, yeah, you just got to find the right point of entry. Yeah, exactly. So point number two, basically occupy the perfect niche. That's, exactly. There's not too many other people who can dominate that yeah. like he can. And then he can use that and go do other stuff from yeah. that niche. And that's like Scott Adams' whole thing too, right? Yeah, Don't get really exactly, good in one right. field, yeah. right? Get good in two or three fields that you yeah. can combine in an interesting way. Because for him, it was like the business experience, the humor and the drawing, yeah. right? Which yeah. led to Dilbert. Exactly. <laughs> That's a very kind of cool niche way to do something. If you want to be the absolute best writer in the world, that's going to be hard. But if you can combine writing and marketing and, you know, like speaking, like that's going to be a lot more useful because right, right. that's a niche you can dominate. Right. Or if you've lived a very unique life that you have something to write about too, that's going to be, that, that also helps. Then the writing doesn't have to be amazing, right? It's right. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But once you have that idea of what it is you want to focus on and become yeah. a master of, that's when we move into the next section, which is, you know, section two, submit to reality, the ideal apprenticeship. And here's how Green opens the section. After your formal education, you enter the most critical phase in your life, a second practical education known as the apprenticeship. Every time you change careers or acquire new skills, you re-enter this phase of life. The dangers are many. If you are not careful, you will succumb to insecurities, become embroiled in emotional issues and conflicts that will dominate your thoughts. You will develop fears and learning disabilities that you will carry with you throughout your life. Before it is too late, you must learn the lessons and follow the path established by the greatest masters, past and present, a kind of ideal apprenticeship that transcends all fields. In the process, you will master the necessary skills, discipline your mind, and transform yourself into an independent thinker prepared for the creative challenges on the way to mastery. So this is huge, right? Yeah. Is pretty much every example that he gives in the book, they had this apprenticeship phase. Yeah, I would say basically everybody who's ever been successful <laughs> pretty much had to have had this. I think the counterexample he gives is Edison, okay. who didn't have somebody to go off of, but he immersed himself in books, right? No, but that still counts as an apprenticeship. Yeah, no, I yeah. think it definitely does. Yeah. But it's a good example of how you can do it if you don't have somebody oh, right there, absolutely. right? Like yeah. Books are fantastic. Yeah. Uh, ben Franklin kind of did that too when he didn't have a writing teacher, right? It was amazing. You, all the more amazing at you know, at a time where it was much harder to get books. I mean, yeah, you exactly. couldn't just go to Amazon. No, and like just go online and read yeah. blogs, right? 
actually like, experienced that the only time I've really ever experienced that non like book on demand you know kind of lifestyle was when I was in Asia recently. Oh yeah, and I was like, look, I was I ran out of the books that I brought, and I was at the time not that thrilled with like I didn't want to buy a Kindle book. Okay. So I was like, I'm gonna go find a physical book. Like one finding a bookstore that had English books, two that finding English books that I wanted to read. Yeah, couldn't find anything, so I did buy a book on Kindle at that time. But uh, yeah, but it's all the more amazing that people like Ben Franklin and even Edison were able to do that when well, you couldn't just go to Amazon. And- to be fair. Back then, pretty much any book you got was probably going to be very good and useful. Yeah, for kind it to like exist. Yeah. Kind of like going back yeah. to our letters from a Stoic discussion and the antifragile discussion, right? Like books back then That's when printing point. was a lot harder. That's a good point. It was the like threshold really, was really yeah, high. Yeah, threshold was really yeah. high. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't like today when you could just print a 50-page right. ebook on like <laughs> building good habits. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That's a good so, point. Yeah. So, so Green gives these three steps within the apprenticeship phase. And step one is deep observation when you're mostly passive. He says, the greatest mistake that you can make in the initial months of your apprenticeship is to imagine that you have to get attention, impress people, and prove yourself. These thoughts will dominate your mind and close it off to the reality around you. And then he explains that you start off in the apprenticeship by observing who's doing well in the field and trying to learn rules and strategies through your observation of them. Yeah, just a completely open mind. Yep. It's like really the study phase. Yeah. And this is where books I think can be great too. Oh, absolutely. Is you're like getting as much info as you can on how people do this and you're just trying to absorb it and internalize it, take notes on it and just really get as much information as you can about how to do whatever yeah, this is. Yeah. And I think this applies too for like anytime someone's entering like a new industry or something too. Mm-hmm. Like I have a, a blog post on my site, which we can put in the show notes, but it's basically how to get up to speed in any industry quickly mm-hmm. because I've switched industries so much. Like I was in higher ed and early ed then uh did some like marketing tools then big company and cosmetics yeah. beer like i've just bounced around a lot in different industries but there have been common themes and i've kind of like every time i jump into a new industry this is like i literally copy this yeah. for that particular new industry so i just like read everything i can about that industry talk to like anybody i can talk to in that industry just listen right. like i'm not trying to like impress my views on anybody it's just really just listen to hear what they say about the industry and then yeah just like open yourself up to observation and but without this judgment part of your brain active, yeah. just like absorb it. Just try to take it in. Yeah. yeah. And as you do that and start to absorb more of it, then you can move into this step two, which is skill acquisition in the practice mode, where you're beginning with one skill that you can master and that will serve as the foundation for acquiring others. He says to avoid at all costs here the idea that you can manage learning several skills at a time because you have to develop your power of concentration and understand that multitasking will like destroy you here. It'll be too easy to flit around from different things. And when it gets frustrating, it's easy to drop one. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Focus on the easier one. Yeah. And then he also says that the initial stages of learning a skill will involve tedium, but rather than avoiding the tedium, accept it and embrace it. The pain and boredom that you experience in the initial stages toughen your mind, much like physical exercise, right? Like anti-fragility. This keeps coming back up. (laughs) And too many people believe that everything must be pleasurable in life, which makes them constantly search for distractions and short circuits the learning process. Is this written by Seneca or Robert Green? I know, right? (laughs) (laughs) It's like, it's so funny too, because, you know, we were just talking about this with letters from a stoic, right? Where it's, hey, if you want to be a master, if you want to be happy, if you want to get anywhere like you have to do the work you have to put it in you can't run away and hide you can't like go play candy crush (laughs) like you have a choice yeah and i think that's why the way green frames the book in the beginning is so useful because he's saying like you have no excuses you can become a master at anything or you can't or you can't yeah but that is a choice and every time that you are choosing not to get better 
right? Like every time that you're not getting better, you're choosing not to get better, right? right? right. Like you're choosing distraction, you're choosing the easy path. Right. And you know, okay, some people want to do that. That's fine. Yeah. But, but if you if you want to become a master and then you don't do these things, right. it's like it's, you have to recognize that it's, right. I mean, it's your fault. And so then finally, he's really emphasizing deliberate practice and deep work here, where this process of hardwiring and learning can't occur if you're constantly distracted, moving from one task to another. In such a case, the neural pathways dedicated to this skill never get established. What you learn is too tenuous to remain rooted in the brain. It is better to dedicate two or three hours of intense focus to a skill than to spend eight hours of diffused concentration on it. You want to be as immediately present in what you are doing as possible. Deep work. Deep work. And, you know, deep work was written after this. So, but it's a very common thread throughout history. Pretty much, you know, there's very little productivity advice that's useful, but picking one thing and focusing on it is kind of, you know, it's always been good advice for actually getting things done. And if you, whenever you've gotten anything done, it's usually, if you notice, it's not about the, like, oh, I spent 16 hours doing this thing. It was like a few hours, maybe two, three hours, but you just got so much done during that time. I don't know about you, like the best articles I write, it will be like a couple hours of like, and then it'll just come out of my brain basically. It's on the page and it's like mostly there at that point. Then you got to edit and like add sources and things like that. But like, it just happens. Like when you're really deep in that kind of deep work phase of your brain. Well, that's why I kind of like combining because uh, I don't believe that you should, you know, only write when inspiration strikes you. Like, that's a terrible yeah. method. But you want whatever it is you are writing to have some element of inspiration. Right. So I like having when I'm going to writing like a few different tabs open with different articles that I'm working oh, on. Smart. And then whichever one feels like the one to write, then that's the one that I'll work on. Smart. And I usually find yeah, when I do that, letting the muses decide. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> like that's when I'll get you know like fifteen hundred, two thousand words in under an hour, yeah. and then it'll kind of be like, oh, cool. Like, yeah, where did that exactly. come from? Where did that right? come from? <laughs> it was, it was obviously in there, you know, for some reason. And yeah, so it's like deep work is huge. And we'll we'll link to my notes on deep work too. So they'll have that deliberate practice. This is is something I read also. um, I know Darwin was known for this too, where he would basically work in the morning Mm. and then not work in the afternoon and go for like a walk or like whatever and, and do something else. But it was like the amount of productivity he got done in those like three or four hours would be more than like most people get done in like multiple days. And it's, he was probably employing deep work strategies, probably with no distractions, was just Dude, fully working. Dude, it was a lot easier back then, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Although it might all just be relative too, That's right? Fair. I'm sure they had distractions that they, you know, I don't know. I'm sure there were distractions. Yeah. Just they don't seem like distractions to us. us. But yeah. Like, oh, it would be great if your only distraction was a bird chirping yeah. outside, right? Now you've got like Twitter chirping. Yeah. You constantly. <laughs> Although that is in our control. You can put our phone somewhere. That's true. Yeah. That's, right. that's usually what I have to do. Yeah. It's like put my phone on silent and hide it so that I don't get Distracted. Literally, as your phone goes off, as yeah, we're talking know, right? right now. Well, we, we don't want to get interrupted. <laughs> yeah, I'm just kidding. But uh, yeah, I mean, uh, just one last example. Uh, Hemingway's writing process, I think, was so interesting because what he would do is he would literally wake up, make coffee, stand at his desk and start writing. And then whenever he hit a point where it was like a good break, he would just write down however many words he wrote that day. And then he would just go like fishing and hang out yeah. on the lake and just chill for yeah. the rest of the day. It's a great model. Yeah. Right. It's like you just super hard work beginning of the day and then, you know, go read, do whatever else. Like, And I think this might be another tangent, but where it's like you sort of need that like not active work time right. to let your brain sort of consolidate all the thoughts going on oh, in so your head. Important. Oh, it's so yeah. important. Yeah. Cause I, yeah. I mean, if you don't get that, it's, it seems like the idea is 
maybe it's not they just stop flowing the quality goes down quality goes down yeah you get fewer of them and that leads into this last phase that green focuses on just step three the experimentation in active mode as you gain more skill and understanding you must move into the active mode where you take the skill and apply it yourself you have to break out of just following the rules and start creating new works on your own and that's when you really start to learn and engage with the apprenticeship so those are the three steps that he gives of like, or the phases in the ideal apprenticeship. And then he gives some strategies that will help you kind of complete it, right? Like get the most out of it, whatever kind of apprenticeship you're doing. And should we, yeah, we could just go through these one by one instead of reading them all at first. So I, the first one is something we've talked about a lot, which is to value learning over money, right? That is his number one thing for the ideal apprenticeship is especially early in your career, focus on learning. The money can come later. 100%. thousand percent agree with that. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. It's never going to be easier to just learn and yeah. to make little money than it is, especially when you're young and in the beginning. Your cost basis will never be less. Oh, yeah. Either. Yeah. <laughs> like when you can live on very, you know, meager food, you don't have kids or a mortgage or yeah. a car to pay for, yeah. right? Like, okay, maybe you have student loans. But even with that, you know, it's still the best time in your life to just focus on the learning yeah. and not the money. Yeah. And it's it's one of those things, too, where it, it makes whatever project you work on have upside because it's like if it works out, that's awesome. Yeah. Let's say you're you know, you want to learn about growth strategies or marketing strategies and you create like, you know, an e-commerce site to sell like tea or coffee or just something like just some experiment. If it works out and you make money, that's awesome, obviously. Right. But if you don't, you still learned a ton of skills. Yeah. And that's so uh, Chaz and I use this thing. We call it rich in learning because we had that experience. So many different projects we worked on where like it's a good idea. You work on it for a while. It doesn't work out, but you still like learned a ton. Right. So you might not be rich in dollars, but you're rich in, <laughs> but you're rich in learning. So we don't, we always use that anytime like an experiment doesn't work out. We just say rich in learning or anytime something goes wrong, you can use that too. Cause you can just learn from it. I love that. So then the next one is to keep expanding your horizons meet a lot of different people, read different ideas. I think that one's huge, yeah. right? Reading different books, especially more on the like philosophical level to affect how you think about the world. Like yeah. that's huge. Yeah. Uh, listening to different podcasts and stuff too, right? I love this quotation, right? If you read the same books as everyone else, you'll think the same as everyone else. Yeah. If you're just consuming the same media as everyone else, you know, like you sort yeah. of become that. Yeah, you sort yeah. of become it. Reverting to a feeling of inferiority. And if you've read Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, it's basically the same thing, right? Shoshin, keeping that beginner mentality where you assume you know nothing and that you're a complete noob and like everybody knows more than you that you can learn from everyone. You learn so fast when oh, you do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like you can learn so much faster. You get out of that ego of like, oh, well, I already know this. Like, I don't have anything to learn from them. You just assume there's always more to learn. So helpful. It's really hard to keep that as you get more experience though, but it's, yeah, it, yeah. I haven't found the perfect way to, to do that, but it, I want to. So yeah, if, same. If anyone has suggestions, email me at neil at neilsony.com. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that's, that's actually part of why I've been doing a bit of writing with like other publications mm. is just to have an editor. Oh, I see. Right. Yeah. Someone who does know more, Someone like who, for sure, more than you. And, yeah. Or yeah. like not even necessarily that they have to know more, but know different. Yes. Right. Right. Where it's like they might not even be a better writer per se, but they can definitely think about things in a different way. Yeah. And like that's so helpful. I mean, with like us editing each other's stuff too. Like it's just so helpful to get another set of eyes. Oh, we have different yeah, thought processes. So yep. yeah. So just keeping that open mind. Trusting the process. This is huge. We said in the beginning, this is a years, decades process. Yep. And especially as you get better and better, you will see the gains less and less. And so you just have to stick with it and push through. Yeah. And it's, it's one of those things where by going into it 
knowing it's a years long process, you've zoomed out the scope a little bit. Whereas if you were kind of thinking like, oh, I have to be a master at this, or I have to be a millionaire by age 25 or whatever, you know, some artificial metric you set for yourself. If that's the way you're thinking, then you're going to get very impatient. And the second, you know, there's a roadblock, you're going to freak out and you might switch paths, you might give up. But if you're looking at it as a years long process and you're trusting that, that kind of as long as you're continuing to work, kind of going down the path, doing the right thing, it will get there. It will get there. Yeah. And as it's getting there, you want to move toward resistance and pain. So again, going back to anti-fragility, letters from a stoic, these ideas keep coming up, right? When you have an option to move in an easy direction or a hard direction, go in the hard direction. Like that's where you're going to learn a lot. That's where the real growth happens. And you have to be okay with failure, right? Apprentice yourself in failure. Recognize that, like you said, you can be rich in learning. Even if the project doesn't work, you can still get a lot out of it. And that's yeah. great. I remember your uh, podcast with Justin, which I recently yeah. was listening to. And it was like when he was talking about all the different projects he's tried. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but what was the, my favorite was the eyebrow yeah, dander right. one. I love that. Yeah. yeah. But it's like, I mean, nobody on the outside sees any of that. No. Right? Like, and nobody cares about your failures. Like, nobody cares. Yeah. I mean, I think that's why I like having some entrepreneurial friends where you can, you can just be sending these ideas to each other yeah. all the time. Like, oh, I think I'm going to try this. I'm going to try this. Yeah. And you all know mutually that like 90% of that is going to go exactly. anywhere but you also know you're not going to judge each other for it right exactly like your ego does not get attacked when right. your idea is failing if you tell like your uncle or something like oh yeah. i'm starting an eyebrow dander business yeah. you know in like two years at a family reunion they'll say something like oh well how's the eyebrow dander business going like oh you quit something again right? yeah, <laughs> like, yeah you exactly. need friends who will like be with you on the hey failure is a good way to learn oh training. yeah exactly yeah. and you kind of get that part of it. And actually, we'll go back to the family thing in a second after we get through the rest of the... Okay. And I'm just going to skip down to advance through trial and error. The whole guess and check system is not bad, despite what they might have told you in school. (laughs) That is literally how you figure things out. That is how the world works, right? You try things and you screw up and then you learn from it. And as long as you know how to take that feedback and implement it... And get better. Yeah, and get better. (laughs) Like There is no better way to learn. Exactly. I'll say on the apprentice side is it's not something that if somebody has either like not read this book or just not experienced this firsthand that you would expect them to understand. So I was having a conversation with my mom maybe a couple weeks ago and I mentioned something that like to me, I wasn't even thinking about it. It's kind of like, I just kind of said it. Right. But basically what I said was, um, you know, I basically mentioned that like, I'm, I still feel like I'm in my apprenticeship. Right. And like, she kind of took that really, she was like, why? Like you're 26. Like, why are you feeling like you're an apprentice? And I was like, in my head, what I mean by apprentice is all the stuff Robert Greene is talking about. And I'm still trying stuff on my own. I'm like, you know, I obviously started this company and like doing all these things Robert Greene is talking about, like following kind of the path. And I feel very good about it. But people on the outside don't necessarily know the terminology that you're using. So it's something that I do anticipate a lot of people probably run into is when they're talking like family, as you said, like, they might not get a lot of these concepts because they just haven't been there themselves. And, you know, I haven't found a good way to frame it, but you just have to kind of not let that bother you or affect you. And make sure that you do have a community that does understand. Oh, absolutely. It, right? yeah. Like find friends you can talk about it with because yeah. it can be a lonely journey. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah. And then he, he ends this section on creating the ideal apprenticeship with this quotation that I loved, uh, which is, in this new age, those who follow a rigid singular path in their youth often find themselves in a career dead end in their 40s or overwhelmed with boredom. The wide-ranging apprenticeship of your 20s will yield the opposite, expanding possibilities as you get older. 
I love that idea. That's amazing. Right? Yeah. It's like you take your 20s or whatever, those first 10 years, you just explore, you try a lot of different things, you develop this broad set of skills, and then you can really start to hone it into specific areas. And really, like that's when the opportunities, I think, really start to appear. And it's so easy, like we were saying before, to not want to wait and just get things immediately. Uh But I feel like if you think of, you know, maybe like 22 to 30 or 22 to 32 as like you're just experimenting and trying to learn skills that takes so much of the weight off because it's like anything that happens is like bonus it's like yeah wow i was able to do that and oh cool yeah right? it's awesome yeah. it's cool because most people don't get anywhere substantial in their work until like mid late 30s right. 40s 50s right. right it's like this very rare that you have the zuckerberg case or oh whatever. yeah but i think uh people will look at that and then think they're behind because one guy has done yeah this. it's like okay you can name one but can you name 10 yeah right <laughs> and if oh. you can't then it's probably not a good model yeah exactly yeah <laughs> Uh, But yeah, so that's how he ends off the ideal apprenticeship section. And then we move into section three, absorb the master's power, the mentor dynamic. And he opens section three with this quotation. The mentor-protege relationship is the most efficient and productive form of learning. The right mentors know where to focus your attention and how to challenge you. Their knowledge and experience become yours. They provide immediate and realistic feedback on your work so you can improve more rapidly. Through an intense person-to-person interaction, you absorb a way of thinking that contains a great power and can be adapted to your individual spirit. Choose the mentor who best fits your needs and connects to your life's task. Once you have internalized their knowledge, you must move on and never remain in their shadow. Your goal is always to surpass your mentors in mastery and brilliance. I mean, it's it's so true, right? And he gives all these examples about how almost everyone that gets discussed has this mentor relationship where somebody usually early on in their learning takes them under their wing and really helps them along for however long. Sometimes it's longer, sometimes less, and also depending on the skill. Some things they're trying to learn. Yeah, some things lend themselves really well to a mentorship. Other things harder. Like I know this is something with stand-up comedians, right? Where it's kind of hard to mentor somebody in that or novel writing, right? right? It's almost something you kind of to do on your own because it's got to be your own voice. Exactly. Yeah. But for a lot of these, you know, scientists, pilots, uh, you know, some forms of writing, sales, sales, management, entrepreneurship, music, philosophy, right? Like having a good mentor. it does make all the difference. It does from a few different standpoints. Like I think from a skills standpoint, absolutely. Just even see kind of like what he's talking about here, where you can absorb a way of thinking that contains great power and can be adapted to your individual spirit. You see as somebody who's way more skilled than you at something is kind of going about their day-to-day tasks. And uh, we may have talked about this a little bit in the anti-fragile one, but people who are good at things, they can't explain what they do that well, right? Like if you ask someone, hey, how do I sell? That person who's let's say great at selling probably is aware of a few of the things that they're doing when they sell, but they're not aware of like the intonations in their voice or like the way they're making facial expressions as they talk, or, you know, maybe where they're saying their ums and their pauses, like they're not thinking about any of that. That's all involuntary. Whereas, uh, you know, the novice person would need to know that stuff. Otherwise they're going to copy whatever the person tells them and it's not going to give them the same results. But if you sit day to day with that person and you watch them sell, you get to experience that you will absorb a lot of those things. You won't even know you're absorbing them, but you will. Well, this is actually going back to the article I referenced before about how to become an expert in any skill, and we'll link to it, but there's a really clear change in how you learn and communicate at different levels. And when you're a novice in a skill, you need recipes and guidelines and clear rules because it's the only way you can get in in the beginning. But when you're an expert, you hate 
clear guidelines right. and clear rules, right. and you operate purely on intuition. Right. And so an expert can't always communicate stuff well. Right. Rarely, probably. Yeah, yeah, exactly. A novice needs like clear structure. And one of the things I point out, not in that article, but in a different one, is that as you move through, and I think Green is saying something similar here, you know, at some point, the recipes and the rules aren't enough, and you need to start absorbing some of that intuition. Yeah. And a mentor is probably the best way to help you do that, where it's like you have a good person sitting with you and pointing out what's right and what's wrong. Even if they can't explain what's right and wrong, it trains your intuition over time. Oh, absolutely. Right? Like like a good writing editor. They might not be able to explain why a phrase sounds sounds better, better, but they know. (laughs) They know. And then that helps you start to internalize that too and go, okay, yeah, that does sound better. Exactly. Right. And I think also emotionally too, having a mentor is really helpful Yo, when yeah. there's some things that you think <laughs> are a huge deal. Because we bullshit ourselves all the time. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh, bullshitting yourself for sure. But then also where you think something is a major problem or a big right. deal. And then that mentor has kind of the zoomed out view of life where it's not actually that big of a deal. Yeah. I can calm you down. <laughs> the Dreyfus brothers, the guys who did the research in the article I wrote, they have this great example of like driving a car. And the first time you drive a car, and I'd sort of forgotten about this until I read it, but when you first try driving, it's really scary. Yeah. You're like, what the fuck is going yeah, on? Like 25 miles <laughs> an hour, and you're like, oh my God. And you're, you're looking at all the dials, <laughs> yeah. and you're like, you're checking and making sure you're still in gear, and you're like adjusting your foot on the pedal all the time. And then, you know, they're totally chill, right? right. Because, yeah. and then to them, it's like, oh yeah, just, you know, add more gas, like yeah. step on the brakes, right? Like, as you get better, you know what to focus on, right. what not to focus right. on. And they're right. so good for that. Because, yeah. I mean, it's really easy to read the wrong things. Can you imagine someone who's things. never driven a car also trying to teach someone who's oh never driven a car yeah. by reading a, by reading a book? <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, you're like, what do I focus on here, <laughs> right? So, yeah, they're so useful for that. Like, they can point you in the right direction. And yeah. then he gives some ideas about how you can deepen that mentor dynamic and really improve your relationship with them to make sure you get the most out of it. So I think this sort of this last section that he's talking about in that quote, which is once you've internalized their knowledge, you must move on and never remain in their shadow. Yeah. I think that's sort of like kind of difficult for a lot of people, right? I mean, I know you've done a good job of like moving to mentor to mentor and keeping a good relationship with them. This doesn't mean you like dump them and like shit all over them and stuff, but it does mean that like it's the easy path is to stay in the shadow of your mentor and kind of have them guide you and, you know, always kind of be in their shadow. But the tougher thing is to step out on your own, kind of see if you can fly. And it's scary, but it's kind of got to be done. Um, like I've been working, you know, with Chaz and for Chaz in various forms for the last four years. And then like I'm just about to like leave his sort of shadow. Right. And yeah, it is frightening in a lot of ways, right? It's like, I got to see if I can do it. But yeah. that's the whole point of the apprenticeship in the first place is to make get your, you to that yeah, point. get you to that level well and this is part of the job of the mentor too oh, yeah i know he's done a great job of kind of like being like all right it's kind of time right like <laughs> yeah like um, yeah. I, some mentors definitely like they don't do a good job of that right. and right. they'll you know they'll either like get jealous and try to hold you back because yeah. they don't want to lose you know the limelight or whatever or you know they'll just sort of like quit Right. right. And then they'll right. not maintain the relationship after that. Yeah, that's a great point. And that's yeah. like, that's bad too, because especially if you've invested in like helping grow someone, yeah. like you kind of want to stay in that. Yeah. Right. And so I feel like the best thing you can do as a mentee is try to establish that with a mentor from the beginning. Right. I was just about to ask you, like in your relationship with your mentors, in the past, has it been pretty well established from the beginning? No, it hasn't. That, okay. Which yeah. is why I think like it's gone both ways. Right? Okay. Because Chaz and I was very well established. Like okay. even when I first met him, it was like, he's like part of the reason I want to hire you is because you want to go do your own thing someday. Right. And so like, I want to capture that energy for a while, but like 
you're not going to be here forever. Basically, that was like well established from the beginning. No, and I think that's really good to do. Yeah, right. Because the, the example Green gives in the book is Michael Faraday, the scientist, and like his mentor was basically holding him back and trying to publish his research as his own and like really hamstringing him professionally. Yeah. And so eventually, Faraday just had to be like, "All right, well, screw you. I'm going right. to go do my own thing." And they probably have no had no relationship. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. I think they like started trashing on each other in like newspapers or something like that. Right. Like you don't want to get into that situation. Yeah. So it's kind of on both of you to try to end it civilly. But yeah, I mean, I mean, while it's going on, right, Green does give some strategies here for improving the mentor dynamic. So he says, you know, choose a mentor according to your needs and inclination. And I'll just read from him here. In this case, the right choice can perhaps provide what your parents didn't give you. Support, confidence, direction, space to discover things on your own. Look for mentors who can do that and beware of falling into the opposite trap, opting for a mentor who resembles one of your parents, including all of his negative traits. You will merely repeat what hampered you in the first place. So it's like one of those uncomfortable things where a lot of people, their parents don't support what they want to do. And if you want to, you know, go after that true life calling, that work that you're excited about, you have to find someone who will support that. Like if you only rely on your parents for support and if they're not giving you that, like you have to find somebody who will. Right. And also like parents don't have every single skill or every single kind of like type of support at their disposal. It's like, they have kind of their own concerns as well. So it's finding, you know, somebody else who can kind of fill in those gaps that your parents had. Exactly. And he gives, uh, he also says, you know, gaze deep into the mentor's mirror. So it it took me a minute to like understand, but the mentor can basically hold up a mirror for you, right? Where they're showing you where you're weakest and where you need to improve. And it's up to you to really like look into that and see what information they're giving you to understand, okay, you know, this criticism is helpful, right? Like it's making me better and get over the ego of hearing criticism, right? It's what they're there for. Right, exactly. And then there's no sort of feeling that they're attacking you. This is like, you're getting better through this criticism. You're going to improve way faster. Uh, He says, you know, transfigure their ideas. So don't just do what they do. Take what they are giving you and make it your own. You have to think for yourself and integrate what they are teaching you with what you're learning elsewhere. And you also have to make sure that you're not adopting their bad habits, right? right? That's a great point. It's up to you to like say, okay, this is what I want to get from them. This is what I don't want to get. And then adapt their ideas and their practices accordingly. And I think identifying that is helpful and then seeing that if that exists in yourself as well. So yeah. like, I know like, you know, I mean, Chaz is really good at sales and I think most people who are really good at sales are not great at confrontation. Mm-hmm. So yeah. like, that's definitely one of his weaknesses. And I know for myself, that's also been one of my weaknesses and my dad has the same exact thing. Yeah. So like, I know I've definitely absorbed that from my mentors of like not liking confrontation, but because I've seen that over the past few years, I've like actively sort of tried to work on to, it. Yeah. I sometimes try to like seek it out or like, Maybe we'll, we'll like, I will volunteer to do more confrontational things, maybe for Chaz in some cases. And that's particularly to work on that skill because I know it's a gap, right? And like, I know I haven't had a mentor who is good at that. So it's kind of like, you see what your mentor is good at and you definitely want to learn from that, but you see what they're not good at. And I mean, he's very well aware of it. And so, but he's happy to have me go through that sometimes. (laughs) It's funny you mentioned that example in particular, because that's something that my parents were not very good at either. And I've never had a great mentor at it. It was just something like, especially looking back and realizing how many times being better about that would have saved me a lot of headaches later. Yeah, (laughs) It's like something I've been trying to get better at. But yeah, just a good example. Uh, Okay. And then the last one here is like create a back and forth dynamic, kind of like what we were saying, right? You can't just be subservient to the mentor, right? You have to push back, make it clear what you need from them and work on the relationship together and adjust their instruction style to fit your needs. So how does somebody get a mentor though? Does he cover that? He doesn't really cover it. He doesn't really cover that. (laughs) He kind of just glosses over that. (laughs) 
Because I think like the one thing that's not said here is you have to provide something to the mentor. So which is why I think he lists it as step three. Mm. It's not, I mean, it's part of the apprenticeship, I think, in my opinion, but it's not like you can't come in with no skills and email like somebody and be like, hey, I want you to mentor me because for X, Y, and Z. Well, that's, I mean, that's the mistake a lot of people make is that they get started in a skill and then like, hey, I want to, you know, apprentice under you or have you mentor me. And it's like, well, what do you bring to the table? Yeah. Right. So I feel like it's up to you. So it is a two-way relationship, right? Where he's saying create a back and forth dynamic. It's not like the mentor is doing a public service by like (laughs) mentoring you. Yeah. Like they are getting something out of it. I mean, if you can, if you can get a job, that's a mentorship. Like that's one of the best ways. Uh, I think startups are amazing for this. You know, if you go to a big company, odds are you won't get really good one-on-one mentorship. But if you're working at a really small early stage startup where you can be the second or third hire in your division, like you're going to just get crazy mentorship because they want to bring you up to their level as quickly as possible. And you're working with somebody so closely, right? So it's like, yeah, you've got that relationship. I feel like that's always the easiest way creating like softer mentorships where you're just emailing them questions. That's a good one too. And getting little bits of feedback that way. Like that's super helpful. That's a really good Uh, one. And people are usually really open to that, especially people who aren't in the public light. So, you know, it's a lot harder to get mentorship from someone who has a big blog readership because they're getting so much inbound that how do you break through that noise? Yeah, that's hard. But if you want to get advice from somebody who, you know, is a little quieter and maybe works on something cool, but they're not very public facing and you find them on LinkedIn and dig up their email, they probably don't get much outreach. Right. So they're open to it. They're very open to it. Yeah. You might even be able to get them on the phone or for coffee. Right. Because they're not being swarmed by this stuff. Especially if you're showing that like you're thoughtful about it, like you've read their stuff or you actually have real questions not you're just like how do i become a startup <laughs> or, or ceo ask, <laughs> or, or ask a question that they can just google you can just <laughs> you google, google you know yeah. like that, that's the, like because I'll, I'll get those emails sometimes like uh, somebody who emails you and they just very clearly have not taken the time to try to right. figure it out on their own yep. it's almost like it makes you even less likely to respond because then it's like, all right, well, if you're not going to take the time to do your research, you're not going to take the time to incorporate the advice either. Right. Exactly. It's like, why would they help you? Like one of your, uh, one of your listeners, actually, uh, Eric Walsh, he emailed me after listening to one of the episodes and he basically like clearly had done his research. And then in his email, he recommended books to me. Nice. And I was like, man, this guy knows like how to get a response from me. But yeah, like then we talked on the phone and like, we're like friends now through that, but it's just like, that's the kind of cold email that you'll respond to yeah. because it's very well thought out, providing some value. I got some good book recommendations from it. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, you know, I love that stuff. Oh yeah, so, of course. Yeah. <laughs> so if you want to be friends with Neil, send him book recommendations. Yeah, I'm a sucker for book or food. I like or food, food too. Or, or beer. beer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or just interesting ideas. <laughs> All right. So that kind of ends the apprenticeship phase. Well, actually, okay, this next one is part of it too, but those were two of the more important parts. And then this fourth section is to see people as they are and to develop social intelligence. And he opens the social intelligence section with this quotation. Often the greatest obstacle to our pursuit of mastery comes from the emotional drain we experience in dealing with the resistance and manipulations of the people around us. If we are not careful, our minds become absorbed in endless political intrigues and battles. The principal problem we face in the social arena is our naive tendency to project onto people our emotional needs and desires of the moment. 
we misread their intentions and react in ways that cause confusion or conflict. Social intelligence is the ability to see people in the most realistic light possible. By moving past our usual self-absorption, we can learn to focus deeply on others, reading their behavior in the moment, seeing what motivates them, and discerning any possible manipulative tendencies. Navigating smoothly the social environment, we have more time and energy to focus on learning and acquiring skills. Success attained without this intelligence is not true mastery and will not last. I thought it was really interesting that he includes this section because it's a big part of the book and it's very, I mean, it's it's a little tangential, but it yeah. seems like a huge part based on his research of understanding mastery is knowing how to read and interact with people. Because yeah. the example he gives a little later on that I really like is... I can't remember his first name, but Semmelweis, the guy who yeah. figured out hand washing oh, was yeah, the problem, right? right? Yeah. So, you know, he figured out like, hey, something is going on with not washing your hands after handling corpses. And that's why women are dying in childbirth, right? He figured it out. Whatever hospitals he was able to get to try it, like the birth death rates like dropped dramatically. Oh, wow. But this guy was so socially inept that he would just run to hospitals and be like yelling at them like and you, need to do this. Like, you have to do this like you're murdering people <laughs> like, he seems like a crazy person right so a lot of people talk about like oh the hospitals were so terrible to ignore him and it's like well no it was kind of his fault because right. he didn't right. know how to communicate his right. ideas yeah right yep. and that's why you know i think green includes this is like look no matter how good you are if you can't communicate your stuff it's not gonna matter it's not gonna matter yeah yeah, I mean, you see that happen all the time too. Oh, with yeah. People, yeah. Well, it's like kind of a common criticism of startup CEOs sometimes, right? It's yeah. like they can be a little, a little weird, a little Aspergery, and yeah. have a hard time selling selling their ideas, and it holds them back. I actually think one of the I'm not saying everybody should go work a sales job, but I'm saying one of the the best things I've found, at least in my life, was working a sales job for a few months, and is like you get really good at reading people. You get really good at understanding like whether they are going to... Because there's really an outcome at the end that's a yes or a no. And that's kind of like what he's going with here, which is saying like realistically seeing them. Someone could be saying all the right things. Like they can be saying, yeah, I'm interested and whatever. But you learn very quickly who's actually interested and who's not. And you just get very good. It's just forced learning, right? And I think partially what he's saying here relates to sales. Because I always say this to people is like, whether or not you're a salesman or saleswoman... You are selling something always, right? right? If you're presenting something, you are selling something. If you're writing an article with an argument in it, you're selling, you're selling your argument. Yeah. If you're presenting something to your boss, let's say you work at a big company, that's a sale. That's a sale. It's like you're presenting something. Yeah. Uh, you're trying to get a job. You're selling yourself, right? right? I mean, it's all selling. And I think partially what selling gives, like learning that sales skill does give you is this ability to read people and understand what's going on in their brain because it's right. so externally focused, right? You got to understand like where they are and... Yeah, it's just, I find it to be a very useful skill. Yeah. But I, I do laugh when people say like, oh, I'm not a salesperson. It's like, oh, <laughs> it's like well, you, you better figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, he gives two kinds of knowledge here about emotions. Yeah. And the first one is a little bit briefer. It's specific knowledge, right? So reading individual people yeah. where you have to learn how to see people as they are. And Green says, to begin this process, you need to train yourself to pay less attention to the words that people say and greater attention to their tone of voice, the look in their eye, their body language, all signals that might reveal a nervousness or excitement that is not expressed verbally. If you can get people to become emotional, they will reveal a lot more. 
I love this, right? It's yeah. like you got to learn to see the other stuff. Have you read What Everybody Is Saying by Jim Not yet. It's on my it's list. It's a fantastic <laughs> book. Oh, it's it's like if you want a really good textbook on yeah. a lot of this stuff, that's that. That's really good. Yeah, it just moved up my to read list. Did it? Okay, a lot. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll link to it too. But it's that's a really good one for understanding a lot of these little cues. And then he jumps into general knowledge of like the seven deadly realities of emotional intelligence. And I think we can go through these fairly quickly because people will recognize them. But these are the emotions that you need to be careful of in terms of how you communicate and also be aware of in other people and how you interpret what they're saying. So envy. We're always going to be comparing ourselves to others in terms of money, looks, coolness, intelligence, popularity. And it's by standing out too much that you'll spark this ugly emotion. So in some ways, you don't want to be too threatening in your exterior yeah. to prevent people from, you know, projecting this feeling onto also you. also one of the 48 laws of power. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Another green book, if anyone's unaware. Uh, conformism. You know, when people form groups of any type, a kind of, you know, tribal mindset will set in. And even if members of the group trumpet their tolerance and celebration of people's differences, the reality is that those who are markedly different make them feel uncomfortable and insecure, calling the values of the dominant culture into question. I think we can skip yeah. that one for now <laughs> because will it, will be, that one. <laughs> it yeah. will be a separate podcast. <laughs> uh, rigidity, right? So the world has become more complex in many ways. And whenever we face a situation that seems complicated, our response is to resort to a kind of artificial simplicity to create habits and routines that give us a sense of control, right? We don't like change. And even though you should be okay with change, you also have to accept this rigidity in others, right? Because most people are not going to be that open to it. Self-obsessiveness, right? We always think first and foremost of ourselves. I mean, you should always expect other people to do the same. Uh, laziness, we all want to take the quickest, easiest path to our goals. But again, if you really want to be a master, you can't. But assume that that's what everyone else wants to do. Flightiness, uh, we like to make a show of how much our decisions are based on rational considerations, but we're usually governed by our emotions, which are always coloring our perceptions. And then passive aggression, right? So the root cause of all of this, kind of like we were talking about before, yeah. is a fear of direct confrontation. And, you know, even if other people are not going to get over their tendency to passive aggressiveness, you have to get over yeah. it. Yeah. That's the only way you're going to rid yourself of that in your life. So then he talks about some strategies to acquire this social intelligence, you know, however much you have already. And the first one, which I think is really important, is to speak through your work. Like, don't try to just, you know, talk about how great it is or talk yourself up or, uh, you know, focus on the marketing over the product. Like, have a good product. Yeah, have a good product, right? Master the craft, get really good at it. And that's going to say a lot more than any of your own, you know, tooting your own horn. He, he talks too about crafting the appropriate persona, right? So, He's basically saying you have to create an identity for yourself as this master. It's not evil or demonic. You know, we all wear masks in the social arena, playing different roles to suit different environments that we pass through. And you're just becoming more conscious of the process. Yeah. You're doing it more deliberately. We um, definitely all do this. Oh, yeah, we all do it. We all act different with different people. Yeah. And I think he's saying here, like, especially for your work, right, yeah. as the master, you should have some consistent persona that people can identify you by. And I feel like that makes sense, because if you're too crazy and all over the map, then it'll be harder for people to identify with you. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Uh, seeing yourself as others see you. I mean, we all have social flaws ranging from, you know, harmless ones to problematic ones. And by going through exercises to try to see yourself as others see you, it can help you work out 
these kinks. Sometimes uh, even calling them out. No, oh yeah. Right. Like yeah. having friends who will call you out on stuff like that is really important. Or even calling them out yourself too oh, when you know them. Yeah. Um, I know Chaz has a really good thing he does in his sales calls or he used to do, I guess. Not anymore. He doesn't sell anymore. But back when he used to sell, he'd always say like, you know, after giving a pitch, right? Like, cause you've talked for now five, six, seven minutes. He would always pause during the pitch. He'd say he likes to hear himself talk too much. So he's like going to pause and see if you guys have any questions. But like by calling that out mm-hmm. in case the other person was already thinking it, it now makes it like a little cute that the person uh, said it, right? Yeah. That's like, oh, they know that about themselves. Then it, there's no hard feelings at that point. Right. But if they're just talking and talking and talking and with no self-awareness, exactly, with no self-awareness, yeah. then it becomes offensive almost to the other person. So yeah, by like calling that out yourself, you can kind of preempt a lot of that, yeah. a lot of that negative energy. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, as long as you're not too apologetic. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I feel like there's a balance, no. yeah. right? But yeah. if you say it in like a funny way, it's like kind of almost like reduces the tension of like, it's not a sales call. It's yeah, it's like, oh, we're just hanging out. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> and then the last thing Green gives here is to suffer fools gladly. So he says that in dealing with fools, you must adopt the following philosophy. They are simply a part of life, like rocks or furniture. <laughs> All of us have foolish sides, moments in which we lose our heads and think more of our ego or short-term goals. It's human nature. Seeing this foolishness within you, you can then accept it in others. This will allow you to smile at their antics, to tolerate their presence as you would a silly child, and to avoid the madness of trying to change them. It's a little pretentious. Is this written by Marcus Aurelius here? That too. Have you ever read a book called Crucial Conversations? I have not, but I have read some of, there's a really good slideshow summarizing it Okay, yeah. Uh, by Matan Griffel, actually. Well, no, I just, my brother had recently recommended it to me and I, uh, maybe he was sending a subtle signal there, <laughs> but uh, we, um, so I, I've been reading it. I'm not completely done, but there's a concept in there that I do really like that I think applies a lot to this, which is called like the pool of shared meaning. Okay. So it's basically when you're talking to somebody and especially in a confrontational situation, if you can kind of create this, what they call a pool of shared meaning, like basically that shows you guys are working towards the same outcome Uh, or that there's some type of overlap, you can kind of win them over a little bit. And then you sort of agree that you're working towards like the same goal, right? Right. So like in a work environment, like, you know, ultimately we're just trying to do whatever's best for the company. We might have different tactics to get there. And then you sort of start from that shared pool of meaning. And then the rest is kind of like edges that you're quibbling over, but it turns it from confrontational to more, uh, teamwork well it's kind of like that really good general relationship advice right you're solving the problem together you're not fighting exactly right yeah and just that even that little mental trick yeah that's always helps with disagreements yeah yeah and i i think a lot of what he's talking about here is like you will i mean if you're in any kind of work environment you're trying to become a master of anything you will have these situations pop up yeah guaranteed and you have to be able to handle them, navigate through them yeah And that's essentially where he leaves the apprenticeship phase. And then we move into section five, which is awaken the dimensional mind, the creative active, the phase that comes immediately after the apprenticeship. And he opens up this creative active section with this quotation. As you accumulate more skills and internalize the rules that govern your field, your mind will want to become more active, seeking to use this knowledge in ways that are more suited to your inclinations. What will impede this natural creative dynamic from flourishing is not a lack of talent, but your attitude. Feeling anxious and insecure, you will tend to turn conservative with your knowledge, preferring to fit into the group and sticking to the procedures you have learned. Instead, you must force yourself in the opposite direction. 
as you emerge from your apprenticeship, you must become increasingly bold. Instead of feeling complacent about what you know, you must expand your knowledge to related fields, giving your mind fuel to make new associations between different ideas. You must experiment and look at problems from all possible angles. As your thinking grows more fluid, your mind will become increasingly dimensional, seeing more and more aspects of reality. In the end, you will turn against the very rules you have internalized, shaping and reforming them to suit your spirit. Such originality will bring you to new heights of power. All right. So the goal in this section, after you've left the apprenticeship, is to awaken that dimensional mind, right? To think beyond the constraints of the skill, beyond the rules, guidelines that have been guiding you in the beginning and keep learning and growing and applying it, right? You don't want to become stuck in your ways to conform to the norms of your time too much. And this section is all about how to cultivate that dimensional mind, that creative active phase and spark that creativity and continual learning beyond the constraints of the skill. Yeah. It's kind of like where you take the rules and then you kind of chuck them, but you have such an intuitive understanding of those rules that you can now play around with things. I feel like this chapter and probably the one after as well, they're so difficult to put into words. Yeah. Because, I mean, he has managed to do that in this case, but it's just, it seems like so much more of like a feeling. Like I think he even calls this out in the intro. We've all had like those flashes of it. Like we were talking about it with the writing and things like that. But I mean, masters, you know, will feel that all the time, but it's like very hard to put that feeling into words where you have that kind of like control. You know the rules, but you've kind of chucked them and are playing with some of the variables. And I think as you move more and more into the mastery phase, as you're chucking out the rules, you're chucking out the rules for mastery too. It's like in the beginning, okay, you know, you read these books and you do these projects and you learn from these people and that's your apprenticeship. But then when you're getting into the creative active, the mastery phase, it becomes a lot more ethereal where it's just, you know, continual practice and refinement. But I think that the framework he gives here is, is really useful. So the first step that he gives is the creative task, right? So he says you have to pick something related to this interest that you choose to work on. It has to have this obsessive element. It must connect to something deep within you, and it's the choice of where you direct your energy towards. And this will be a big part of your mastery is what project you're deciding to put that creative energy into that what you can keep learning on. And he says to keep two things in mind when you're picking this task. It should be realistic while still being at the limits of your reach so that you stretch for it, right? So you want it just to that sweet spot where it's going to be hard, but not impossible. And you have to let go of your need for comfort and security, because if you need everything in your life to be simple and safe, this open-ended nature of the task will fill you with anxiety. If you are worried about what others might think and about how your position in the group might be jeopardized, then you will never really create anything. And I think that actually, like, a lot of times we think, you know, entrepreneurs are kind of chucking the rules and like doing their own thing. But there is a lot of conformity in entrepreneurship as well. Yeah, they're usually following a playbook of some sort. And so this is like, I could see this affecting entrepreneurs as well, where, you know, you you might be starting something, but you want it to conform to the group standards or like the branding has to be the same way as everybody else's. And as he's saying, that is not the way to create anything new. No, no. Uh, But you have to do that in the beginning. Yes, absolutely. But then eventually, you know, if you really want to stand out and be a creative, you have to move past it. And then people will copy you. And then people will copy you. Exactly. (laughs) So then the, the second step he gives is creative strategies, right? So he says that your mind will naturally tighten up unless it's constantly stretched out, right? We want comfort, we want security, we want the norm. So he says you can use these five strategies to keep your mind open and flexible. So he says cultivate negative capability, which is where you're learning to embrace mystery and uncertainty, getting comfortable with not knowing how to do something or how something works. 
allowing for serendipity, right? Creating opportunities for good things to happen, but not relying on them. And even something as simple as carrying a notebook with you at all times to jot down ideas as they happen, right? It's huge because you never know when you're going to get hit with that spark. Too bad you can't bring one in the shower, but they have a shower whiteboards. I think you just, you have to put your phone like outside (laughs) and put it on record and just yell stuff at it. (laughs) I think that's a secret. Actually, iPhone seven, you can bring in the shower. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Uh, I learned that, well, would have been the hard way if it wasn't, but I dropped yeah. it in the ocean like a week after I got it. Nice. And But it was like the shallow part of the ocean and I forgot that it was waterproof. So as I pull it out, I'm like, what? And then it's still working. And I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, that's, that's nice. Cool. <laughs> Go back in. <laughs> the third strategy he gives is to alternate the mind through the current. He says, the current is a constant dialogue between our thoughts and reality. And if we go into this process deeply enough, we come into contact with a theory that explains something far beyond the capability of our limited senses. I don't 100% understand this, but I think it's kind of like... Well, haven't you had that feeling of intuitive like yeah. flow? It's like, I don't know if flow is the right word. I think but- it's sort of like flow where it's like, you're not really in the world. You're... You're sort of in your mind and in your mind relative to the world, but you're almost like an observer to the thing, kind yeah. of like meditative. There was um when I was really doing a lot of sales stuff at Mom Trusted, there was a at a certain point, I wouldn't say this happened all the time, it happened, you know, kind of flashes of this. Yeah. But there were certain times during like sales calls where it was almost like I was watching myself do the call. Mm-hmm. And I could like, like because I, I, I knew what I was going to say and like do, you know, basically I, I could do it in my sleep. And then it would almost be like you're playing chess. Like the other person would make a move. Like they would say like why they can't buy it because of something or why they haven't made a decision yet or whatever. And then you have like, you know what piece to move after that. I don't, I'm not doing justice to the description, but it was, it was very zoomed out. Like yeah. that's the only way I can describe it. Like I'm not in the conversation. I'm like a plane above the conversation and the conversation's happening Like I'm still saying stuff, but I'm not thinking of what I'm saying. Yeah. No, I've gotten that during public speaking a good number of times where, especially when I was doing startup pitches, once I'd gotten it pretty well practiced, I felt like once it started, I was just watching Nat doing the presenting. Yes, exactly. It's it's an odd experience. Yeah. It's really odd. You're like, well, that was smart. I was like, oh yeah, say that. Yeah. Good job. Yeah. (laughs) Good job, Nat. Yeah. So, so then the next one he gives is uh, altering your perspective. So trying to see the subject or problem from different angles, look at the how instead of the what, shift from macro to micro or vice versa. Look for what's weird about it, what's absent instead of just what's present. You know, these are like these little mental tricks that are so helpful, right? Like Charlie Munger's thing, you know, always invert the problem, uh, right? Yeah. Flip it around and see how it looks that way. Yeah. Or I, I like the question of absence, right? It's like the famous Sherlock Holmes case, right? Mm-hmm. The dog that didn't bark. Like that's what's weird is what right. didn't happen. Right. So you look at that, what's missing. Exactly. You look at yeah. what's missing instead of what's there. Yeah. All these little things, I think, really help get your mind out of its normal ways. And then the last one he gives is to revert to primal intelligence, try to think beyond language, get very visual or physical using diagrams and models. I find exercising. Yeah. Right. If I'm yeah. really stuck on something yep. like going to the gym and lifting yeah. or running a bit helps, a lot. helps so much. Even just walking. If you can't even go get to the gym or yeah. something, just even just walking walk around in nature. Yeah. Don't bring your phone, like leave that off. Just go for a walk yeah. It'll make a big difference. Yeah. And then the third step that he gives is the creative breakthrough, right? So what this is all leading to, and he says that at a particular high point of tension, the master lets go for a moment. This could be as simple as stopping working and going to sleep or deciding to take a break or temporarily working on something else. What almost inevitably happens in such moments is that the solution, the perfect idea for completing the work comes to them. After 10 long years of incessant thinking on the problem of general relativity, Albert Einstein decided one evening to simply give up. He had had enough. It was beyond him. He went to bed early, and when he awoke, the solution suddenly came to him. 
right? This is just like we were saying with exercise. You think on something really, really hard, you kind of prime your mind and then you let go, you relax and it will usually come to you somewhere in there. Uh, Josh Whiteskin, the chess grandmaster, he wrote The Art of Learning. He talks about doing this deliberately in his book, Art of Learning, Hmm. where he gives a few examples. He says, you know, one thing before you end your workday, think about what your biggest problem is. Hmm. Like focus really hard on your biggest problem and then end your workday and don't look at anything else. Because then you have the rest of the day and all night for your mind to ruminate on that yeah. problem. And he says doing that too before like exercise and whatever, whenever you leave, fixate on a problem. And whenever you arrive, focus on doing something. Because what a lot of us will do is we'll arrive like at the computer or whatever, and then we'll do input, right? We'll do email or Twitter, right? right? right and right. that destroys whatever subconscious processing you were doing. That's a really good point. But if when you arrive, you jump right into writing. It's the or same idea notes. of like in the morning, don't do email first. Don't do, do email, like, right? Yeah. Do like morning pages yeah. or like something to get those ideas out. And that way you keep them, you don't lose them. Yeah. That's really smart. And then he gets into some emotional pitfalls here. Green gets into some emotional pitfalls that you want to avoid. And I think, again, we can kind of do these fairly quickly, but complacency, right? So constantly remind yourself how little you know, right? You're a beginner. Conservatism, don't be afraid to like be bold and try new things, right? Don't get stuck in old habits or old trends. Dependency, right? In the apprenticeship phase, you rely on the mentor. Once you're in the creative active and you're applying it, you have to be beyond needing someone's approval, Right. right? You have to apply it. Impatience, again, right? This keeps coming up. You have to trust the process. You have to do it. You have to push through it. Grandiosity, you're still not at the point where you should be expecting public attention. Keep focusing on getting better and improving. And then inflexibility. Like, don't be afraid to question the assumptions of the field, to try new things, to experiment. Yeah, or what you learned. What you think you've learned. What you think you've learned. You could have adopted bad habits from a mentor that you need to unlearn, right? Or some assumptions might have changed since the last time you learned something or something might be different now. If the field doesn't fit the map, right? Right, there we go. Yeah, there we go. New article. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Inspired by Nat and one of our previous podcasts. Yeah, (laughs) that's where where all these ideas come from. Conversations with friends. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, so then he gives some final strategies for the creative active phase that you can use to enhance the process while you're in it. So he says the authentic voice, right? So trying to find what feels like authentic expression to you. Anyone who would spend 10 years absorbing the techniques and conventions of their field, trying them out, mastering them, exploring and personalizing them will inevitably find their authentic voice and give birth to something unique and expressive. But again, 10 years yes, exploring, right? Exactly. <laughs> That's how you find your voice. You don't like sit in a room one day and say, right. oh, yeah, like this will be my voice. Yeah. You know, it's, it's an experiment. It's ongoing. It's uh, very interesting too how this like time frame, I don't know if it's like always a 10 year thing. So I feel like I've been like improving my sort of hustle skills for eight years. Mm-hmm. So like started my first thing when I was 18. It was a very small type of thing. You can listen to the other podcasts if you want to know yeah. that is. But basically, I feel like I've been sort of doing this whole like entrepreneurship type of stuff for the past eight years and spending a lot of time and a lot of energy on it and kind of being... And on one hand, it feels really like it hasn't been eight years. Like it feels like I'm just getting kind of very much still learning, like right. just getting started. But on the other hand, it's like if I look back to eight years ago and how much different my knowledge is or how much more like... I don't want to say more I know because I'm sure there's infinite amount more that I don't know. But like, it's... I'm like a different person eight years later. And that's always a good sign. If you can look back on yourself six months, 12 months ago, and be a little embarrassed by your naivete. Yep. Yeah, even like 12 months or six months and stuff. And But I think this 10-year time period... It's interesting because I used to think it's like, oh, too generic. Like it can't be 10 years for everybody. Right. But I think it's more or less like it takes that amount of time. You're not going to wake up in like three years, no matter how smart you are and be very good at something, you know, or like, yeah, or even approaching. 
any, unless any, it's something that you can only be so good at. Yes, right. Right. That's a good point. It's like cryptocurrency yeah. is a good example of this. Yeah, or you can where, get good enough. There's plenty of things where it's like fine to be good, and you know, you, yeah. it might not be your life's work to be right. good. You know, a mate. You, you, you can become I mean? a pretty good cook. Yes, in like six exactly. Months. But you might not be like you won't you know, be Michelin you know, star winning chef or something. Yeah, <laughs> that'll take like 20, 30 years. Yes, right. right? There's yeah. a very steep logarithm. Yeah, that's curve. a great example there. Yeah. So then, the fact of great yield. Uh, where he says it's better to look into 10 such facts with only one yielding a great discovery than to look into 20 ideas that bring success but have trivial implications. You are the supreme hunter, ever alert, eyes scanning the landscape for the fact that will expose a once-hidden reality with profound consequences. This reminds me of Peter Thiel. It's like, what's the one truth that you believe in that very few others do? Yeah, that's a good example it's of like, it, right? seems like the exact same thing. You only need one powerful thing yeah. better than, you know, a medley of like smaller things. Right. It's kind of like, I, I like that. I don't know if it's a parable or whatever, but the lion and the, with the gazelle and the field mice, right? Like a lion can hunt field mice all day and yeah. kill them all day, but it will never, it will starve to death. Right. Yeah, but it just needs it's expending more calories to kill them. Though. Exactly, but it just needs to kill one gazelle, Yeah, right? And it's good, right? So it's yeah. like, are you hunting gazelle or field mice? Justin said something similar on his uh, podcast yeah. with you where he was talking about like people spend a Maybe ton of energy on like lifestyle businesses. And then he's like, you could spend the same amount of energy on like something that could become massive. And he was like, he's basically saying he doesn't understand why you would do the smaller one because people will compete away those profits you're getting much quicker than if you have some deep win yeah there well i was talking to Ankur nagpal who runs teachable and he said something similar where he said like he was really considering doing a lifestyle business type thing in the beginning but yeah. then he realized like building a 10 million dollar business and a one hundred thousand dollar lifestyle business take yeah. about the same amount of time right right, right? like yeah. a year or two of dedicated work will can get you to either point yeah and yeah. it's like i'd much rather build the big business right exactly so yeah i had the exact same realization the past few months with unlimited brewing i think when we first started talking about it it right. was a lifestyle business and i was like oh this could make me a few thousand a month like this will be fine yeah. and then as i started doing it i'm like wait i'm doing all the same work that i would do for this to be like massive it's like why not try and yeah. like go for it yeah why not <laughs> so then we've got mechanical intelligence right you win through superior craftsmanship not marketing we keep coming back to this right like you have to make it good you can't just try to sell it natural powers giving yourself that open-ended time and focus and a wide understanding of your field not settling into complacency and really like imagining yourself years ahead and looking back on the work you've completed, right? Like you were saying, framing it in that way of like yeah. that 10-year time scale, yeah. very helpful for cultivating the patience. It's also helpful when you think about like, so if I think like, let's say I was just saying the eight years thing, mm -hmm. imagine like, so I try to imagine myself like eight years from now. Yeah. And I'm like, if I hope I can keep accelerating the learning, as like the same way as it's been the past eight years because then like i want to look back when i'm 34 and be like man i knew nothing at 26 yeah exactly right that would be great that would be great and that kind of keeps you not complacent you kind of keep going after it because right. you want to be in that same position and it helps you maintain that you know that shoshin that beginner's mind right yeah. it's like all right if every time i look back at myself in a year yeah. i think how naive i was <laughs> yeah i'd be pretty sure that future nat will think current <laughs> nat is very nat. naive too <laughs> yeah it makes you less like cocky too with your knowledge so the yeah. whole idea of keeping the beginner's mind it, it's a lot easier exactly <laughs> <laughs> he mentions the open field. So this is huge, right? Create a space to build something new. Give yourself an environment to be creative. And a big part of that is having the time and the energy to work on your own stuff and not just like what other people want you to be working on. It's necessary for this creative active phase. The high end, right? So the project and the problem should always be connected to something larger, bigger, right? Having that higher goal that yeah. like life task that you're focused on is a huge part of this right and that you can keep coming back to to motivate yourself and then 
uh, we'll just jump down here to dimensional thinking again, right? Like this is huge. You're no longer in the recipe guideline phase. You're trying to think beyond the recipes and the rules. You're preferring a more holistic approach. You're looking at things from as many angles as possible, giving your thoughts added dimensions. You're assuming that like everything interacts with each other. Nothing's in isolation anymore. And you get as close to the complicated truth and reality of your object of study as possible. And, you know, as you keep looking at this huge hole of interrelatedness, like more and more of the mysteries, as he puts it, will unravel themselves before right. your eyes. Which is that think, great? Uh, I think it's a visual. great way of phrasing it. But I think really what he's referring to here is there's so many complex variables right. that are out there. And like, this is a whole separate discussion. So we'll yeah. table part <laughs> of it. But it's like, one of the things that makes humans like uniquely human is our ability to somehow compute all of these variables right. and come out with interesting things. Like these are these great mysteries he's talking about. We don't even know what the variables are. So we don't even have to have to define the variables, but our brain somehow takes in all these inputs yeah. and can come out with like these interesting truths that could drive a company, could drive some creative work, whatever it is. But yeah, this is basically what he's talking about here. Yeah. And they seemingly come out of nowhere. They seemingly come out. Of, it's just like what yeah. you're saying with the blog post sometimes. It's like, yeah, it's just like okay, okay yeah. I guess that's what we're doing. Now, yeah. Right? <laughs> and that's kind of his last thing here too, right? The alchemical creativity and the unconscious, where your task as a creative thinker is to actively explore the unconscious and contradictory parts of your personality and to examine similar contradictions and tensions in the world at large, where you're not just doing these clear things anymore. You're really in that more ethereal headspace and you're seeing what pops out of it in these moments yeah. of tension and release. So it becomes such a huge part of this creative phase. And eventually, through enough iteration in the creative active, we move into the final section here, which is to fuse the intuitive with the rational and reach mastery. And this is the last section of the book. And I, I'm not sure if it's actually the shortest or if I took the fewest notes from it, because, <laughs> you know, it's something so far off I know. for all of us right now that yeah. it's hard to think about and focus on. Hey, you don't know who your listeners are. Maybe that, that's true. Hey, maybe like, there's some masters on here. <laughs> there could be. <laughs> but it, part of, I think, the idea, too, is to never assume that you are a master, right? It's a good point. Um, but I'll read how it starts off and then share some of the notes that we took from it. You know, all of us have access to a higher form of intelligence, one that can allow us to see more of the world, to anticipate trends, to respond with speed and accuracy to any circumstance. This intelligence is cultivated by deeply immersing ourselves in a field of study and staying true to our inclinations, no matter how unconventional our approach might seem to others. Through such intense immersion over many years, we come to internalize and gain an intuitive feel for the complicated components of our field. When we fuse this intuitive feel with rational processes, we expand our minds to the outer limits of our potential and are able to see into the secret core of life itself. We then come to have powers that approximate the instinctive force and speed of animals, but with the added reach that our human consciousness brings us. This power is what our brains were designed to attain, and we will be naturally led to this type of intelligence if we follow our inclinations to their ultimate ends. I love that visualization of mastery as when your skill has become like an animal instinct yeah. Yeah. where you like you see the line and you run yeah right you're, you're not just, thinking no, about it not it's thinking not about your it conscious all. brain involved at all at that yeah. point just pure intuitive right and so he says you know the roots of masterly intuition at first our intuitions might be so faint that we do not pay attention to them or trust them all masters talk of this phenomenon but over time, they learn to notice these rapid ideas that come to them. They learn to act on them and verify their validity. Some lead nowhere, but others lead to tremendous insights. 
Over time, masters find that they can call up more and more of these high-level intuitions, which are now sparking all over the brain. Accessing this level of thinking on a more regular basis, they can fuse it even more deeply with their rational forms of thinking. It's such a cool visualization, right? Where you've got all these rules on one side and you've got this kind of like crazy world of ideas spitting out new thoughts to you and you're just bringing them together. And you're somehow fusing them. Yeah. So, and he gives, you know, a few more strategies for attaining that mastery. Connecting to your environment, again, these primal powers, the ability to connect deeply to your environment is the most primal. So it's like seeing the world as it is. Yeah, exactly. Like trying to get down in the weeds, right? And like really feeling it and being in it. Yeah playing to your strengths with a supreme focus where he says it's like swimming right master it's too difficult to move forward when you're creating your own resistance and so you want to focus in on like where you where you're are strongest right yep. where you're good yeah right and create you know a streamlined path through your skill uh transforming yourself through practice this fingertip feel right it's kind of like we were talking about before where it becomes almost like an emotional exactly instinctive reaction and anyone who's played like, you know, a sport at a high level knows what this kind of feels like where you're not you're not thinking about the physical activity anymore. Yeah. It's like that part is automatic. And then you're at like the higher level of the strategy of it or like the specific tactics you're using, but not you're not thinking about the physical movements anymore. Right. And he gives that example here that each time one skill becomes automatic, the mind is freed up to focus on the higher one. So you move through these kind of like layers of abstraction of the skill where you can become more and more high level with it as things become automatic. Uh, internalizing the details, right? Seeing your work as something alive and your path to mastery is to study and absorb these details in a universal fashion, right? It gets more and more beyond like those clear rules that you started with. It's becoming like just more part of you and like this living thing. Right. It's not, uh, it's not fixed. Yeah. And then widening the vision in any competitive environment, in which they're winners and losers, the person who has the wider, more global perspective will inevitably prevail. And the reason is simple, where such a person will be able to think beyond the moment and control the overall dynamic through careful strategizing. So I guess it's like cultivating that macro micro view. Yes. Right? Learning to detach yourself from the situation, see it on a high level, be emotionally removed, and then make your decision. Right. And still be able to operate at the micro level. Exactly. Because there's, I mean, you see that happen a lot where someone will be very micro oriented and then not see the big picture. I think that's what he's talking about here. Then there's the other type, which is very macro oriented, can talk to you about all the trends and all these things, but like can't do anything. Can't get in the weeds and actually execute. Probably like some CEOs are like that. Yeah. I feel like this is one of the big compliments that people always give to Elon Musk, where he's really good at the high level, but then he can also go down into the engineering and actually like understand what's going on. Right. And I think that's so valuable too, because this is also another tangent, but, um, (laughs) but like, uh, you know, people bullshit to CEOs all the time because they tell them what they want to hear. Whereas like, can you imagine someone tried to like bullshit Elon Musk on like the physics of something? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. He would, he could call him out on it. Right. Exactly. He would know. So I think that partially what he's talking about here is like that person would be able to think beyond the moment and control the overall dynamic because they can actually understand the full situation. Right. And then the last couple that he gives, submitting to the other, the inside out perspective, where we can never really experience what other people are experiencing, will always remain on the outside looking in. But you have to try to understand where other people are coming from. Because if you always expect them to have your motivations, that's where misunderstandings and conflicts come from. Exactly. And then finally, systematizing or synthesizing all forms of knowledge, the universal man or woman. In any way possible, you should strive to be part of this universalizing process, extending your own knowledge to other branches further and further out. The rich ideas that will come from such a quest will be their own reward. 
broadening your horizons, pulling things in from other areas and really like creating that holistic approach to the skill that makes you unique. Now, I love this part at the end that says the rich ideas that will come from such a quest will be their own reward. It's like doing it for the process's own sake, exactly. not for monetary fame or whatever, you know, whatever the societal reward is. And you're going to get like so many new ideas and opportunities and combinations by combining fields in this way. Yeah. That I think that's where a lot of the like real masters end up getting probably many of their ideas. Yeah. These other experiences. Right. But it's also just not doing it for that sake. Right. In the first place. It's like that will ha- that you know, can happen, yeah. but it's like you're it's doing it because it's so great. Yeah. It's a great book. Ooh, it is a great book. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's got me fired up. It does. Yeah, I feel like we we need to go. Uh, we need to go work. Spend ten years doing something. Yeah, uh, <laughs> recording podcasts about books. Hey, not it's not a bad idea. It's not a bad idea. No. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I love this book. It was so fun getting to put these notes together and really being able to dig into it. Yeah. I'm going to put all these notes online for anyone listening. Uh, you'll be able to find them at nataliason.com/podcast or just Google like mastery natalie and neil sony and you'll find it but yeah i mean everyone who's listening you know you should definitely pick up this book yeah like, definitely this is a must read it's a must read if you want to you know get good at stuff and i would especially recommend it if you've been reading a lot of life hacky rapid <laughs> learning yeah you know become fluent in three months like this is like the opposite type of stuff because it's the opposite there's a place for that stuff and that stuff is good for getting an easy introduction to a skill but this is the hard work that comes after And if you really want to stand out, I think, in a field and really obviously like become a master of it, you need this mentality, not the like quick hack, quick win. I think high school, college, early career, definitely pick this up, especially if you I mean, if you don't know what you want to do, still pick it up. If you know what you want to do, still pick it up. Yeah, it'll help. Definitely. And I think it's never too late. No, it's never too late. He says that right in the beginning. Yeah. Right. It's like you might be 30. 30 is not old. No, not at all. 40 is not, you know, there's plenty of time. 10 years. You got 10 more years. More than that. I mean, if if you're doing creative work, you can work well into your 70s, 80s. Easily. Especially if you're enjoying it. I mean, I don't know why you would want to stop. Right, honestly, exactly. Like, yeah, if you're having fun, like that, that'd be a punishment to stop. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll do another episode on the philosophy of work and yeah. things like that, I'm sure. <laughs> but yeah. Uh, yes, so go pick up a copy of Mastery, get the show notes online, and I'm sure that we will be back with more books in the future. Absolutely. Cheers, cool. guys. It was fun. All right. We hope that everybody listening enjoyed that episode of Made You Think. Hope it made you think about something. (laughs) (laughs) I couldn't resist. Couldn't resist. No, it had to be said. But as always, episode show notes and more are available at madeyouthinkpodcast.com. Definitely go check it out. Get the links to everything that we mentioned in the show. You can always hit us up on Twitter. I'm at Nat Eliason. And I'm at the Rail Neil S. So let us know what you thought of this episode and share it with a friend who you think might enjoy it. This podcast can only survive and grow with your help. And we would love it if you would let somebody else who you think might enjoy listening to these topics know about the show. Thanks, guys. See you next time.